It's car con carne. Let's eat in the car. It's car con carne. And welcome back to Carcon Carne. I'm James Van Osdell. Before we get into this interview here, I want to thank uh, Johnny Barr, who's been a big supporter of Carcon Carne. Can't do it without his support and your support. Thank you, Johnny. Uh, if you want to support Carcon Carne, it is up in the Best of Chicago edition of the Chicago Reader 2020, the Best of Chicago 2020. It is up for Best Music Podcast and Best Podcast Host. Voting wraps up Monday, so get your votes in. It's Chicago. Vote early vote often and one more programming note on two weeks from yesterday on february 15th i'll be joined by brent sopel stanley cup winner former chicago blackhawk uh, we have an ongoing partnership with the brent sopel foundation brent sopel and arguably no forget arguably hands down the best diver in the history of the sport greg luganis uh, both those guys will be talking about dyslexia because the brent sopel foundation was founded to help raise awareness of dyslexia, dyslexia, uh, Greg Luganis, a dyslexic as well. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about Luganis's career, winning four Olympic gold medals, a silver medal when he was 16. We'll talk about his advocacy for gay rights, his work to help people with HIV. It's going to be amazing. That's on February 15th, Greg Luganis and Brent Sopel. Uh, but now th this is exciting. In fact, this is a, a much anticipated interview. I'm joined by Kat Goldman. She is a singer-songwriter. She is from the Great White North, and her new book is this right here, Off the Charts, what I learned about or learned from my almost fabulous life in music. Good evening, Kat. Good evening. Nice right out of the gate in, in, in this book, I, I want to read something you wrote. Okay. Have you ever felt different, weird, or like you don't belong? Don't belong. Do you tend to think outside the box? Would you be described as a square peg in a round hole? Are you shy and quiet, a loner in your life? Were you ever teased or bullied as a child? It could be because you're a songwriter. I think that I, I think so many people who might be listening or watching identify with that. I think you described the entire creative community with that. Yeah, true. Very true. Um, songwriters especially are, are a, a unique breed. Um, and it's funny because every time I meet a songwriter, there's instant connection. You know, it's like we're all part of one, this one tribe. Audible. This book off the charts, it's a lot of observations, a lot of short essays and thoughts, your experiences being a musician and, and making your way through through this industry. A lot of cynical overtones. You, you talk about it being a lousy business. Um, your advice to your younger self, get out now and never look back. <laughs> it seems I mean, right. you're in this love hate relationship with what you do. That's exactly right. Um, I there, there's a great feeling that comes after you do a show and people get your songs or or someone will come up to you and say, "Wow, your song really touched me," and I can totally relate. and And you know that you know you've touched someone, and and so it all makes sense. and And there's a great high that comes with that, but. Uh, there's a lot of um, bad stuff that comes <laughs> with being an independent songwriter, especially because I liken it to being thrown out into a, a shark infested water. There's nobody to protect you. 
um, especially as a woman, you know, you can have a lot of uh, uncomfortable experiences and, um, and it's really, it's really tough. It's, it's a lot of work. You put your soul into it and there's very little reward. Um, everybody from managers to producers to uh, booking agents, I've had, you know, terrible encounters just, you know, where, where you, you break down crying, you know, because it's so traumatic. Um, and then you just sort of brush yourself off and get up and you keep going. It's interesting. What you're describing is something I think a lot of creatives have trouble with as they try to turn what they do into a business, having to work that side of their brain and think like a business person when all you want to do is create, perform, get your content out there. All the other stuff seems like entanglements and mess you don't want to have to deal with. That's it. You you have to wear so many hats when you're a songwriter. I don't know if people realize uh, you're writing the songs, you're, you're rehearsing the songs, you're recording the songs, performing them. And then at the same time, you're doing your own promo. Um, so yeah, it's, and, and I was never good at business. Like when I was a kid, I, I actually, I think when I was about nine years old, I had a free sale yard sale, you know, I just gave everything away for free. So <laughs> And that's how it happens for me in music, too. I'm always giving away my CDs for free because I would rather someone hear it than not hear it, you know. And you talk about CDs in the book, too. Uh, have, you, have you branched out to vinyl? Have you swung back around to putting out vinyl? It would be cool, but I, I just didn't invest the money in that. Um, you know, before I knew it, C even CDs were becoming... Uh, outdated, you know, many people don't even have a CD player anymore. So, so I'm still sure. trying to figure out what to do with the thousand of CDs of my first record that I have in my parents' basement. That they, yeah, they here's the thing. I've come, yeah. I used to have floor to ceiling, wall to wall CDs. And over the past several years, I've gotten rid of 90% of them. I didn't have a CD player. And I recently, over the past year, during the pandemic, I reinvested in analog listening or old school listening. I got my turntable set up. I got a nice pair of speakers. I have a um, receiver and I bought myself a CD player and a tape deck. And now I wish I had all those CDs. It's the same feeling I had, <laughs> feeling I had when I gave away all my records. Right. But there's something to be said for not having to scroll through stuff on the screen, not having to you know, figure out what you want on Spotify or whatever. Just, just pop a CD in. I like CDs. I still buy them. I listen mostly to CDs rather than things that are on the internet. Cause you know, you're good for 70 minutes. I'll put that on and yeah. got, I'm exactly. good to go. It's an artist I like or whatever. Yeah. So a lot of your life lessons are, are in here. Um, so some benign, some more basic than others, how to treat the sound person. Like, right. Just basically be cool. Right. You don't want to piss them off because they've got their hands on the dials during your show. And so even though, you know, you'll get to the gig and your sound person will have tattoos everywhere and piercings in their lips and, you know, a little intimidating looking. Um, yeah. You know, you want to sort of be, be friendly and polite and thank them for their work and, you know, be clear about what you're asking them for. One of the, one of the lessons um, you mentioned it, it comes in terms of stage banter. Learn when enough is enough. I think this is a lesson that can be applied 
everywhere. Leave them wanting more. Just right. I, it's funny. I did a podcast interview just before you came on tonight. And the person who I interviewed, who's a great interviewee, I've had him on a bunch of times. We talked after we stopped recording. He's like, oh, we could have talked for hours about some of that stuff. I said, I'm glad we didn't. <laughs> like to, right. to your point in, in this book, no one to take your exit or no one to move on to the next thing. Right. You, you don't want to go too long with your banter because, you know, the guy in the front row might start snoring and people get fidgety. Or worse, you, you start seeing people doing this. Oh, yeah. Looking down on their phone. Oh, wait. OK. Right. Yeah. Better, better play something. Yeah. So knowing your experiences with the music industry, the love hate situation, had you always in the back of your head had the thought of putting this stuff in, into writing? Do you know, the first time I had the idea for this book was about 16 years ago. I was on a trip uh, in Mexico and I sat out on the, uh, the ledge overlooking the ocean with a coffee every day. And I started writing about sound checks and it, and it came out as humor. Um, and then it just sort of life went on. All sort of, sorts of crazy things happened to me. I moved to Boston. I went back to school. Um, and when I finished my fourth album, The Working Man's Blues, four years ago, I released it, did a concert, put it out, and then I crashed so hard. I fell into such a bad depression that when I w went to order a coffee at Starbucks and the barista would say, so how are you doing today? I would just break into tears, you know, <laughs> didn't know what to do with my life, was completely lost. And then a, f a fan of my music who has a radio website up here in Canada, um, Blues and Ro Roots Radio, um, said to me, would, would you ever consider writing a blog for our website about your experiences as a songwriter? And something just clicked right away. And I went back to that earlier writing and I started to write blogs every week. And it turned out that each blog was a, a funny chapter about one aspect of what, what it's like to be a songwriter working in the music business. And I called it the disgruntled songwriter. That was the blog. And it, and it was very well received. And when I had enough blogs, um, I thought, geez, I should turn this into a book. Yeah, makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, and and the first publisher I went to loved it, and and I love them. They're a terrific publishing company up here in Canada. So, and the the book is will also be in the U.S. as well. Again, the book is off the charts. Uh, it coming out very soon. Ket Goldman is who I'm talking to right here, talking about some of those lessons that translate from musician to the rest of us. Dare to be different. Just be you. How's that for a good takeaway? Because image is right. so emphasized in, in the music business. Just yes. don't overthink it. Just be who you are. Be who you are. I'm still trying to find my look. I've tried a number of different outfits over the years. Um, no, it's very important to be you. And as a songwriter, to be authentic when you're writing the songs as well. Because I think people pick up on on superficiality you know i think they know when you've written something very heartfelt and it touches them well like annabelle which you wrote that that connected because it was it was an honest it was a true it, it was an emotional song yeah. and you make the point when you sit down and try to write a hit that's about the surest way to not actually do it 
Exactly, exactly. They they often come very mysteriously, the hits. I mean, some songwriters, I'm sure, in Nashville sit around a table and say, okay, today we're going to write a hit, you know. That's never been the case for me. It's never worked that way for me. Yeah, you can't force. It's like working under a deadline. I need you to create X, Y, and Z by 5 p.m. Instant paralysis. When when you're allowed to just kind of explore and let that stuff come, that's how it tends to really bear fruit. A little disconnect between real life and your book. I saw a video of you in Toronto busking with a nylon string guitar. Yeah. In your book, in this book, Kat, you say that busking is the bottom of the venue barrel. (laughs) Right. Well, the video, we just put it out as a joke, actually, to show. The question was, what's a songwriter to do in in COVID? You know, and and then it cuts to me busking, you know, for a dollar, like out in the freezing cold. Busking is never fun. I mean, I guess some people enjoy it, but... In Toronto, it's funny, busking is really looked, is really frowned upon. Whereas when I lived in, in Boston and you'd see all the buskers in Harvard Square, it was, it was sort of a more of a respectable sort of thing. Um, many were, you know, some, some of the, like Martin Sexton was always busking and, uh, the story I saw Jonathan Brooke busking um, in Harvard Square. And so it's different there. It's a different attitude. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That'd be pretty cool to stumble on one of those for sure. The, the one time I ever busked in Toronto, this elderly couple came up to me and said, are you okay? And then, and then they gave me a loaf of bread. <laughs> you know, they were worried about me. People are so polite in Ontario. <laughs> They are. are. One thing you mentioned, which totally struck a chord with me, and this is so difficult for musicians, for anyone, I think, again, I'm going to invoke all creatives uh, schmoozing. It's so unnatural. It's it's so against this idea of I just want to create art. And then you got to kind of and then you got to play the game. Yeah, I in the book, I was uh, there's a chapter called how to schmooze. And, you know, I was sort of joking about the whole thing, but it's true. When you try to schmooze on your own behalf, it really never works. You know, like when you go up to some bigwig and say, gosh, you really should check out my album. It's fabulous. And, you know, they're going to be rolling their eyes because they don't want to hear it from the artists themselves. Sure. So what I've learned is you really have to have other people talk you up. Mm-hmm. And preferably people who have connections. <laughs> True enough. Yeah. Again, the I like being able to read a book like this again, off the charts, being able to read a book like this and take some of what's said there and, and put myself in those situations. Think about how these things apply to me. Another thing you talk about making a mistake. You mentioned this in, in a couple different places. When you goof up on stage, the bottom line is the audience doesn't know things are, are going wrong unless you tell them unless you wave the flag saying hey i made a mistake right. this, this idea of not dwelling on that stuff and powering through and just yes yes and often the audience is sort of intrigued when you make a mistake because it shows that you're imperfect and they like to see that you know well, so they like the recovery it, they like yeah. it's the recovery that's memorable not the actual yeah. mistake everyone that's makes mistakes true. that's true the recovery that's right and so 
yeah, I guess the best thing you could do is just uh, keep going, you know, and not apologize for it. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So here we are in 2021. It's been a year. I didn't even talk about the freak accident in 2003. All right. Hang on. Yeah. Let's talk about that. I mean, you, you were the victim of a horrible accident. It's something you never could have foreseen. It was the bagel store disaster. Um, it, it, you've told the story a million times, I'm sure. But if you can uh, briefly summarize. It's hard to believe I had started working with a big time manager in New York City. Um, who had managed the careers of Sean Colvin and Dar Williams and Suzanne Vega. And he had been having me come down there to do showcases, showcases and shows for a couple of years. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to move to New York to, to see if this will pick my career up a little. And a week before I was supposed to move to a sublet in Brooklyn, I went to get bagels one day for my band who were setting up because we were going to record a few songs. I thought, oh, I better feed the guys, you know. I went into the bagel store, and as I was putting bagels in a paper bag, I heard this explosion. And before I knew it, I was being pummeled against the back wall and I felt just excruciating pain in my legs and arms, and I was actually being crushed between a car that that uh, flew through the storefront window out of control and ended up in the middle of the store. Um, it, it was just surreal. I mean, I, I thought I was going to die for sure. sure. My brain was working so fast trying to put together what was happening. And, you know, a lot of people don't believe this, but as I was standing there being crushed, waiting for the ambulance and fire trucks to come. I actually yelled out to the cashier, could you please make me a bagel with cream cheese and luck to go? <laughs> because I'm starving and I, I know I got to go to the hospital and I haven't eaten any breakfast and whatever. Oh my, what, it, what, what a story. What an awful it circumstance was and that, that let, put you in two years of recovery, yeah. sent you, in, I never made it to New York. Yeah, I never made it to New York. But several years later, I then moved to Boston to sort of recreate my life. And that was a great new beginning for me. Um, I just had to get out of Toronto. I just I, I, I just wasn't moving on from the accident. It was very hard for me. And I had had some roots in Boston because I went to college there in my early 20s. My brother was living there at the time with his wife and my nephew. So I literally picked up and went to Boston that summer and loved it so much. I decided to stay and I went back to school at age 40 to finish my BA, which I never was able to finish in my 20s because I was such a screw up. <laughs> and it was just like a, a, a great rebirth for me and i actually made was able to make two albums as well during my time in boston so i think that's important i think sometimes people do need to have that reset have that yes that not just the emotional change but the physical change too i think that's that that could be very very cleansing absolutely absolutely um i was always sort of hunched over in toronto when i got to boston i actually noticed my my chin was up, you know, like I, I, it was just a new beginning. I love the ocean. I loved being by the ocean. And, 
Yeah, it was just I, I always felt that when I came to America, it was a place where I could really become anything I wanted and was free to pursue my dreams. Whereas like Canada's a great country and I'm so blessed to live here and especially grateful right now with everything that's been going on. Um, but we're very self-conscious in Toronto and a bit shy and um, maybe too polite in some ways. And uh, so, yeah, Boston was, was a great thing for me. And I ended up spending about seven years there. Boston's a cool city. It is. Yeah. And these days, do people in Canada look at America like, like derelicts in the basement cooking, cooking up methamphetamine? (laughs) Well, it's just sort of shocking. Like I've just, you know, been watching CNN for the past 10 months and it just, it's just mind blowing. The insurrection was just, that was just mind blowing, mind blowing, mind blowing. Yeah. I, I, I treasure the thought of someday not having a news cycle as intense as this when I don't check my phone first thing in the morning just to make sure that everything's okay for that day. Yeah, I'm all for just putting the brakes on on the news for a little bit. Oh, for sure. I'm on a break right now. Now I'm watching reruns of Homeland. (laughs) There you go. There you go. All right. So what's next? We we just came off this bad year. You're about to put this book out. Obviously, you can't tour anything. So are you going to write this for a little while? Are you writing more while while at home and in lockdown? Well, it's funny. The publisher after uh, this book went into the editing process, we met for a coffee. This was just before the pandemic broke out. And he said, so are are you going to be writing a new book? And it just shocked me because I didn't know that they would want me to write another one. So I've started writing a new book. And uh, I'm not going to tell you what it's about. No, and you shouldn't, but I'm glad you are. But it's going to be really funny. Well, yeah, I, the, your personality pours off the pages here. So I, I have no doubt of that. Thank you. And I, I wanted to make people laugh. You know, I just, that's all I wanted to do was, was produce some chuckles. And, you know, this, the stuff that you see in the music industry, you just, you can't make it up. I mean, it's just, it's, <laughs> You know, and, and you have to look at it, look at the humor in it, because otherwise it's just too devastating. You know, <laughs> all, the, all the rejection and, you know, it is. Well, it's funny. We started this interview and you talked about how rough and how shark like the independent music yeah. scene is. And all I could think is, oh, my gosh, I, on the major label side, you talk about predatory and diabolical. I mean, it, it does. The grass is not greener on, on that side of it either. Sorry, on on. On the other side, like on the major label side on the. Oh, for sure. Oh, yes. Well, I, that's what I said in my book. I don't think I I'm sort of happy I never became famous because like if you become famous, you can never just go into a store and buy a pair of jeans again, you know, because people are weird. <laughs> I know. Like, I'd rather be anonymous than, you know. I support this. All right. Nice job on the book. (laughs) Kat Goldman, uh, thank you for doing this. This is what the book likes. You can order it wherever it is. uh, Fun read. It's it's a read. I mean, the second you get it, you'll finish it before you go to bed. Off the charts. What I learned from my almost fabulous life in music. I appreciate you doing this tonight. Thank you for checking in. Thank you so much, James. Thanks for having me.